People always want to know what it's like to be me. How does it feel to see a dead body? Tell a family their loved one has been murdered. Talk to a rape victim. Catch a killer. And get them to confess. Hold on tight, my friends. Get ready for the journey. And welcome to Murder with Menina. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Murder with Menina. I think... If it sounds spotty on this podcast, it's because Colleen is in the jungle in India, in India, literally, right, Colleen? (laughs) Yes, I'm in a wildlife sanctuary in India, so the the internet is less than ideal (laughs) for me on this end. Yeah, yeah, so we'll get through it, but if it gets a little spotty, a little delayed, that is why. But anyway, I want to start out this episode of the podcast with some good news. I got a really nice message on Facebook. It said, Christine, my son got me a murder case file for Valentine's Day. We solved the murder in six and a half hours with less than A plus crime scene photos. It was super hard, but it was all due to your awesome tips and tricks. So I thought that was cool. She sent that, you know, people are buying those murder packets on Amazon and doing them. So I actually got some for my, for my students and uh, they're a lot of fun. They give you crime scene photos and they give you the victim and pictures and all the stuff that's happening. You have to figure it out and you kind of get online and you tell them the answer. And if you get it right, then you get to move on to the next section. So anyway, shout out to Brandy Russell Eastwood for supporting me and my career and my podcast. So um, unfortunately, again, we have to talk about another mass shooting that happened at uh, Michigan State University on February 13th. and, And we'll just briefly talk about it and Again, I think uh, five people were injured. Three people were murdered um, as the gunmen who, at this point in time, Anthony McRae, um, they weren't able to find really connection to the university, but he decided around 830 to go uh, up to the Michigan State University campus and start shooting. And so they are um, grieving and reeling from that unfortunate tragedy that's happening again and again and again. But... Um, What's kind of interesting, as I was kind of looking at it a little bit, is uh, Anthony McRae, the shooter, he had a couple handguns, he had a lot of ammunition, and um, what's interesting is he was arrested a couple years back for having a handgun without a license, and he goes to the court system, and unfortunately, they offered him a plea because Uh. it's a felony charge up admission to carry a gun without a hand, handgun license, and, and he was concealing it and all that. But he was charged with that, and then the prosecutor office comes back and gives him a plea deal, and he pleads to a misdemeanor charge. Um, and he was on probation for 18 months, started out being 12 months, and then it went to 18 months. Um, but unfortunately, because when the probation ended, it allowed him to buy handguns again. And so because the prosecutor's office offered him a plea to a misdemeanor charge as opposed to a felony he was able to buy handguns and and which he did and then he decided to go shoot up Michigan State but we were just talking about the plea arrangement and the plea deals and for people that know that most most people 95 percent of the cases are um, given plea deals which means they don't do not see the inside of a courtroom and it allows them um, the positives of it are um, it, they do have to plead guilty to something. So, you know, they're found guilty. Unfortunately, though, they plead to something. They plead to a lesser charge. 
And that must be such a frustrating aspect. It's, of- it's horrible because what happens is exactly this. Now he doesn't have a felony on his record um, and he was allowed to go out and buy handguns. So, you know, there are pros and cons in each case I think is individual, but I think in this day and age when people are being arrested for any type of gun charge, you really have to kind of try and stay away from offering them something that still would allow them to purchase handguns. And the prosecutor up in Michigan now is getting a lot of flack for doing that. And she goes on to explain that, look, 95% of cases are plead or plead out because what it allows it, it allows it to get through the system quicker. It doesn't um, overpower the courts because so many cases aren't going to court. It's settled outside of court. And then again, it's a win for the prosecution because pleading guilty, even if it's a lesser charge is a win. Um, But, you know, and and like I've said before, the prosecutor's office want to take, wants to take a case to court that they can win. And so it's a win for them if they can get somebody to sign a plea agreement and say, yes, I'm guilty, you know, and it's a big, I'll give you this, you give me this type of thing, but we are starting to see the repercussions of this. And in this story, you know, in this incident, you know, he, um, was going to, he had a note that he was going to shoot up several other places. I think Myers where he worked or had worked and then a, a place in New Jersey. Um, but he was 43 years old living with his father and both his father and his sister uh, described him as an angry evil. Um, so they knew he had some anger issues. And I think um, what kind of expedited all of that was the passing of his mother a couple of years ago. He's kind of been angry evil ever since then. So again, it's such a sad, sad thing that we have to report on. It seems like all the time. And of course, whenever anything like this in the news comes up, I try to talk to my kids. Um, You know, I have one that's thinking about going to Michigan state. It's just crazy. So, you know, again, I hate, you know, it's the same old thing, prayers out to the families and, and everything, but man, we've got to do something. And, you know, the leaders in Michigan State were like, when is enough going to be enough? And that is just the question. When is it going to be enough? So um, I don't agree always with the plea agreements. They are offered all the time. Um, and that needs to, I think, be to the forefront, too, of why are we not taking these cases to court? And, of course, when you take them to court, there's always a chance that you may lose. So that's the reason that plea agreements are, are given and, and to keep the system moving in a factory line workers get the cases in get the cases out get the cases in get the cases out so there's benefits and and negatives in both but we seem to be seeing as a country the repercussions of these types of things so anyways my enough of my rant on that but it's just so disturbing um so anyway but i want to shed light on a case that i is out of uh east nashville tennessee tennessee nashville tennessee is one of my favorite uh places me too And, and colleen and i have been there together and I've been there a few times and I love that city. Uh, but this case is, yeah, this case is a little interesting. Um, the victim's name in this, it's still, it's still considered a missing persons because her body has not been found. And that always begs the question is, is she still out there? And, and the parents, you know, of course, just want closure. Is she still out there? Is she, is she dead? You know, and of course I always say the chances of her being dead are just really, really high, but you know, every once in a while you get a case where um, they're found, you know, alive and they just kind of lived a different life. But anyway, her name is Tabitha Daniel Tudors. Um, her date of birth is 429 of 2003. 
Um, or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, she went missing on April 29, 2003, but she was a white female. She was 13 at the time of disappearance. So she would have been, well, shoot, a couple days ago, she would have been 33 years old. Um, when she went missing, she was four foot nine to five foot. She was little, weighing 90 to 100 pounds. And kind of the background on this a little bit. Um, well, also, let me give her her description. She had sandy blonde hair, blue eyes. She has a birthmark on her abdomen and a scar on her finger. Um, her ears were pierced and she has fair, freckled complexion. Small, four foot nine again, five, four foot nine to five one is kind of how she was um, described, 90 to 100 pounds. So not big at all. So the background on this a little bit with Tabitha was last seen around 7 a.m. headed to her bus stop. Her mother leave, left around 6 a.m. for work and her father leaves around 7. And she, she is supposed to board a bus around 8 o'clock. Um, a witness saw her in the direction of the bus stop and she was kind of looking down, looking at some papers. Um, she never got on the bus. But what's interesting about this is that mom and dad didn't know that she wasn't at school. So she was, you know, taken so early in the morning um, and didn't realize that her, you know, that their daughter wasn't at school. And I think it's interesting because like, should there be an alert? Should there be, especially with a student that didn't miss school, she wasn't one to miss school. And you would think if she were to miss school, parents would call and say, Hey, I guess that's old time. I mean, I guess that's, my mom used to have to call the school. I wonder and how say, that was missed. I, I can't imagine that that was routine at that school. Yeah, it's sad because the problem with it is it got the investigation started a lot later than it needed oh, to be. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Those poor parents, they must just, that must haunt them. Whole day went by. Yeah, they didn't know until she got home. So, extremely sad. Okay, so let me just start off with okay, so Tabitha failed to come home from school and they learned. Um, that she was, you know, absent from school. So they're really, really far behind. Mom and dad report her missing about six o'clock. Um, so they're so behind in this, especially with the witness seeing her um, a little bit before eight o'clock, but never getting on that bus. So law enforcement, they do a great job. They go straight to work and they learn more about Tabitha. Um, you know, the first question, of course, is did she run away? And from the background that they got, there's there was no history of running away. And that's always the first question law enforcement's going to ask when a child goes missing is, especially at this age, is there a possibility that she ran away? But there was just no history indicating that she had no boyfriend. She made straight A's. Um, she had perfect attendance and was active in the church choir. Her parents um, could not think of a reason why she would run away. So, you know, it, it seemed like once they learned all that, authorities in the in the neighborhood and everybody got on it. Um, they still have to assume, you can't get tunnel vision, you know, there's still a possibility of her running away, but you can't, you can't treat it like that at that point because there's just no validity um, at all. And so as law enforcement, you really, you know, if there's no validity at that, then you've got to go, um, you know, to the point that she's run away and get on it. Um, so they do an interview or they do, they, they talk to her parents and then they go in and they look and they search her room. Um, and hopefully at that point, somebody's in there searching her room and then there's other officers in the area looking for her. Um, so in her room, um, were all of her belongings, including, you know, her clothes and makeup and more important, <laughs> they thought was that she left 20 bucks. Um, she was supposed to do six flags in two weeks 
and super excited about that. So she had money in her room. So that's another indicator, you know, that she didn't run away and that she had been talking oh, wow, about going to Six Flags, which is, right. which is a huge amusement park. And she was super, super excited about that. So based on all of that, you have to kind of tailor your investigation toward her being abducted. Um, law enforcement cleared her parents. They did that pretty quick. There was a little bit of suspicion, suspicion about maybe her siblings, um, but none of them were really considered suspects. People started canvassing the neighborhood um, and started talking to everyone. And I'm such a huge advocate of that when kids go missing. Get everybody that you can because really realistically, the street officer gets there. They make the report. They're trying to get as much information. There's other officers that are going on runs in the neighborhood as well. Then the officers have to you know, contact a missing persons detective. And really, you're only talking about two or three people that are starting to get the information and really physically nobody's out looking yet. So as more officers get contacted that there's a missing child and then the neighbors get involved, that is such a huge, huge thing. So if you're ever in a position to get out, you know, you hear of a missing child in your neighborhood, um, you know, get out and join the search because it's so valuable at the very beginning. So valuable. Um, A neighborhood boy, a little guy said, that he uh, he told police that he saw Tabitha get into a red car on that morning. Um, he said that there was a black male driving it. He thought maybe 30 to 40 wearing a baseball hat. The boy said after she got in the car, the car reversed his direction and went up the hill. All right. And that's, it's, what this, he was a little guy and he gave that information. Um, he did law enforcement was not convinced how credible he was, however. Um, but they, you know, they put that description out as, as well. And what's kind of interesting is that the boyfriend of the sister was looked at, um, because he drove a red car. Um, but he was eventually cleared. And the reason why he was kind of looked at is obviously he would know, or he did have knowledge of her route, to the bus stop. Um, so they cleared him, I guess. Um, so they keep kind of going on and they do get the dogs out and they trace her scent. So again, they're doing everything they can. They've got people out looking, they're doing interviews, they're calling the dogs and the dog actually traced her scent to the similar, to a similar route to her um, bus stop. Um, but it ends up in an alley, um, a place that according to everyone who knew her, she would never, ever go. So the dog sent, you know, was going to the bus stop, um, but then detoured to an alley. So, you know, and and, in the interviews with the parents, and that's the thing, too, is you have to be really, really honest with law enforcement. You know, and a lot of people don't do that um, because they don't want to, you know, say that their kid is bad or say that their kid, you know, would never run away or things like that. But the more honest you can be as we're trying to piece the, um, the puzzle together, the better. Um, so, you know, the, the family's saying there's no way in hell that she would go into this alley. And based on the information that they have right now, it doesn't appear like she would do something like that. So um, again, it looks more like an, uh, an abduction. Um, but like I said, it, interesting Tabitha's sister, her former boyfriend matches, this, matches the description of the driver of the red car. Um, he also knew where she got on the bus every morning. And according to law enforcement, they could never able, they were never able to really to link him. Um, he was interviewed and his, he was interviewed, but the one question that I have is 
was his car searched? And I can't seem to figure that out. So as I'm looking into this, I'm like, okay, so they interviewed him. And then of course, always my question is how hard did they lean on him? How cooperative was he? Did he get, was he able to give an alibi at that time in the morning? What has he done all day? Those types of things. And um, if they found his car, which I think they probably did, did they search it? Right. Did they, and one thing they could have done since they sent the dog out um, is send the dog to the car. Did it, there was her scent in the vehicle, you know, and, and I don't know if that happens. So those are always things, you know, that I look for when, when we're looking at these cold yes, cases. Yes. So interesting. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Right. I mean, it sounds like they did, you know, they, they were using all the possible things that they could use, you know, with the dogs and getting everybody and, and getting the information out. But that question, just because I didn't find any information about that, uh, makes me feel like, oh, you know, did they, did they go that one step further? But um, in her room, another interesting thing was there was a piece of paper written in her handwriting and found in her room that said T, the, the letter T, D, T, um, and then N, M, T, L. And T, D, T are her, her, are her initials. Okay, they did find that in her room. They also found um, a business card with Tabitha's name, address, and phone number um, on it. And there was a notation that said, uh, call me, sexy girl, which was crossed out and rewritten. um, And it said, ghetto girl. So there was a business card, Tabitha's name, her address, phone number, and in quotes saying, call me, sexy girl. That was scratched or that was crossed out, and it was said "ghetto girl." Law enforcement learned that the car was it her writing. It was in. I don't. You know, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Law enforcement learned that the card had been given to Tabitha by a friend, and had no connection to the case. Yeah, that's a strange thing. She's thirteen years old, and that was and that was a long time ago. It's. I mean, kids are more. Uh, forward and open now that wasn't the climate back then so that's really strange there's no information about like did they go and interview you know for them to say no connection to the case i'm assuming that they went and interviewed her um and just you know this card was just given to her by her friend but man isn't that weird yeah really strange if her friends were interviewed then they would find out what was the point of the that bit having a business card a 13 year old was it a joke that her friends did? Like, what was it? What was it about? Like, that's just weird. Um, and she goes missing in that same time frame. That's what it seems like. Okay, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Then explain how you know it didn't have anything to do with it. Cause yeah, that's not because this is a girl who came from a loving home. It sounds like so far, right? A pretty supportive, loving home with good parents. Yeah, you know, right. so that's kind of a strain. And of course, you know, 13 year olds experiment and all that and they test the boundaries. But I don't know, that still seems, especially for 20 years ago, really odd. Yes. Her, in context of her life. Yeah, really odd. Really, really off and really odd. I completely agree. Yeah. And business cards aren't a thing. How are they? <laughs> Yeah, and then it, you know, for it to say "call me sexy girl" and then crossed out "ghetto girl," I, you know, it's just weird. Um, it, you move, we law enforcement kind of, you know, they're investigating that it kind of stops. Um, 
I think there's flyers out and there are people kind of still looking, but it kind of, it, it slows some steam. However, though, in, a, in October of 2003, a trucker reported a possible sighting of Tabitha from Linton, Indiana. Okay, so a trucker at a truck stop says that he sees a girl accompanied, accompanied by a man and another teenage girl. The girl who looked like Tabitha appeared to be anxious and afraid. A hotel clerk in Linton, Indiana, also saw that man with a girl looking like Tabitha, and she contacts the police. Now, Linton, Indiana is has maybe seven people. <laughs> I mean, it's really, really small. But I find that interesting that a trucker. So that goes to tell me that law enforcement did a good job of getting. Right. How would the trucker. Right. Her picture out yeah. and, and all of that. And, you know, and then that begs the question, oh, man, did she get into trafficking at some point? You know, you have to look at that. So, you know, greatly that hotel worker contacted law enforcement. Um, but it doesn't seem that it, it went anywhere. It didn't seem um, to go anywhere. But it does beg the question is, is she still alive? Is she possibly being trafficked? You know, I mean, but man, Linton, Indiana, that is, that's just a weird, weird place. So as the years go on, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's been heartbreaking for the parents. And I contacted one of the family members, but I haven't heard back because I kind of wanted to interview them and, and talk to them uh, about it and kind of see, you know, where they think law enforcement is on it, but um, they didn't respond. But her mom, um, in an interview just said, you know, if she's gone, at least I want to know where she is at. If she has passed, I just want to put her to rest. So I have somewhere to go. That was an interview with her mom and dad. And I just saw one kind of recently with them and they're just heartbroken. They're heartbroken in the stretch that they feel so bad. It's, it's interesting because when tragedy, tragedy happens, what people, you know, remember or what those types of things. And, you know, they were just so, they're so, um, upset that they got such a late start in reporting her missing, you know, and we have to learn from these cases and, you know, we have to learn from these cases and do better with these people go missing because time is such of the essence. And, um, you know, they just lost so many hours. Um, again, law enforcement, um, believes that she may have been forced into trafficking. That's kind of how they're leaving the investigation. And so they're doing, um, you know, progression photos it was such an interesting career to do that, right? To, to figure out what somebody would look like at 13 and now she would be 33. And so those progression photos are out and about. Um, the FBI at this time is offering a reward up to 50,000. Um, again, I want to stress that she's got a birthmark on her stomach and a scar on her um, finger, but man, this case is just so. Isn't it like your the parents' worst nightmare? Like, wow, you send your your kid to school and they get abducted. Um, it's just one of the worst. So I just wanted to highlight it. I still, you know, if if I were to go back and look at it, I'd love to sit down with mom and dad, um, the sister, um, the boyfriend again, and just kind of almost redo the investigation to see kind of where we could go with that. Um, but again, if anybody has any information, again, the FBI is offering $50,000 and it's a really easy number to remember. 1-800-CALL-FBI. Um, again, in my, um, I don't know, my instincts tell me that she's probably dead, but 
you never know in this world of trafficking and, and, you know, being abducted at that young age, who knows? Also interview her friends to find out what that business card was about. What's the story behind that? Well, and I kind of want to, I would love to interview the little guy. Well, he's not little anymore, but I'd like to go back and interview, interview him as an adult because, you know, he's the one that saw, you know, he's the, he's the best witness at this point, saw her get into a vehicle, kind of gave the description of the car and the, and the driver. And then for whatever reason, law enforcement at that point said that he wasn't, you know, he was okay, but not crazy credible. And I thought, man, I don't know. You know, he's got the best information. It fits where the dog kind of traces her back. And then it's, you know, he's, he's specific enough to say that once she got into the vehicle, the car turned around, you know, did a quick U-turn and ran up the hill. So I would love to go back and interview him and just say, you know, do or do a new interview with that. But I don't know the business card, the boyfriend, I don't know. It's probably a lot of work to be done, but just wanted to highlight it. These things make me so sad and and uh, again, if you have any information, 1-800-CALL-FBI. How easy is that to remember? So anyways, um, again, everyone, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for leaving us nice messages. There was a, a gentleman that sent me an email about a case um, that was solved, I think. Oh, God, it's been many, many years, but solved by DNA. And he wanted me to talk a little bit about, you know, Ancestry.com. So I'll do some research and and we can talk about how that's really becoming a huge thing in law enforcement and solving cold cases. And uh, again, we just appreciate you listening. Everyone stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. And we will see you next time on Murder with Menina. If you have a cold case you'd like Chris to review, submit it through our website at murderwithmenina.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder with Menina and Twitter at Murder W. Menina. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Murder with Menina.